Well, let me uh, give you a happy spring greeting. And uh, we're today working our way through the book of Ruth. We're in the third of four weeks in Ruth. Today we are in Ruth 3. But just let me review the story that we've been reading up until this point. Because of a famine in the land, an Israelite from Bethlehem named Elimelech moved his family to the neighboring country of Moab. His wife's name was Naomi, and he had, they had two sons together. But once they were in Moab, Elimelech died. And Naomi's sons then married two uh, Moabite women named Orpah and Ruth. Then both of the, the sons died, leaving the three women together as orphans. I'm sorry, as widows. Then Naomi heard that the famine in Israel had ended and she decided to return home. On the way to Israel from Moab, Naomi tried to send her two daughters back to Moab. After some convincing, Orpah agreed to return to her father's house. But Ruth would not be convinced. She clung to Naomi, saying, Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. And so the two of them, Naomi and Ruth, returned to Bethlehem. And when they'd gotten there, Naomi said to the women of the city, The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, in order that the two women might have something to eat, Ruth began to glean in the field of a man named Boaz, who was a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's husband. Boaz became very impressed, having some interactions with Ruth. For her, especially for her devotion to Naomi. And he offered her protection and special favors as she gleaned his fields. And that brings us to Ruth chapter 3. Verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose Young women you were, see he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash yourself and anoint yourself. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and she will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold... A woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? 
She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning I will redeem you. Good. I'm sorry. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives... I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And then... And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So thus far in Ruth we have basically three scenes. The first scene is on the road from Israel, from Moab back to Israel. The interactions between Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. Then the second scene in chapter 2 is in the fields of Boaz, with the interactions mainly between Boaz and Ruth. And now we have this uh, third scene on the, at the threshing floor of Boaz, where he was guarding his, uh, his, you know, the harvest of his crop overnight and sleeping there during the harvest time. And the main interactions were between uh, Naomi and Ruth and then Ruth and Boaz. And in this particular chapter, we have four different little mini-scenes. We have Naomi's plan that she presents to Ruth, and then we have Ruth implementing that plan and then we have Boaz responding to what Ruth is doing and then we have Ruth returning to Naomi and reporting what happened. So let's talk about these four parts of the story. First of all, Naomi's plan, this scheme that she's come up with that she thinks uh, will work to uh, get Boaz and Ruth linked up together. It seems sort of strange. So let's walk through it verse by verse. Verse 1, Naomi says to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? So, uh, here it's clear that she's talking about getting Ruth married when she says, uh, should I not seek rest for you? Earlier, when she was on the road, 
back to Israel, she said to Ruth and Orpah, Go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So what she means here by rest, finding rest, is having a husband to take care of them. And so that's what she means when she says she's going to seek rest for Ruth. She wants to help her find a husband. And then she brings up Boaz, our relative. So then verse 2, she knows that Bo, Boaz, where Boaz is. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. And this would provide them a secluded spot where they could talk privately under the cover of darkness and protect privacy because this isn't the kind of conversation you want to have publicly and also there are all sorts of people that could overhear conversations in many places where they would be but this affords a good opportunity and then verse 3 she tells her to wash and anoint herself put on a cloak and go down to the threshing floor she wanted her to make make herself look desirable, appealing. But, she says, do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So, basically, hide in the shadows until you see that the right moment. Um, she didn't want to leave anything for chance. She carefully crafted her plan to uh, optimize her goal of getting the two of them together, uh, waiting until Boaz had eaten his meal and it was in a good mood. Now, the next words are tantalizingly ambiguous, as one commentator said. Verse 4, when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So sometime later, Boaz was sound asleep and Ruth was supposed to go. When, when Boaz was sound asleep, Ruth was to go and uncover his feet and lie down there. Now, you know, there's no secret there are, that there are potentially suggestive aspects of the language in this verse, in this scene. But it's pretty clear that nothing inappropriate happens and nothing inappropriate was intended to happen by Naomi or by Ruth. It's, and for one thing, we know that because it's inconceivable that three godly people, Naomi, the, the mother-in-law who had the idea, Ruth, who implemented the idea, who, who you know, obediently carried it out and then Boaz who reacted to, the, to her actions very positively that all three of them thought they were engaging in some immoral act now when we try to figure this out the fact is that there are a lot of things that we just don't know this was over 3,000 years ago and there's a lot of cultural things that we are going on that we don't understand. Clearly, all three of these people knew things that we just don't know about how things are to be done. But clearly, this, 
signified a proposal of marriage, basically, to Boaz. Now we see Ruth implement this plan. She not only agrees to do it, but she goes through with it. And so she says to Boaz in their conversation, spread your wings over your servant. She does everything. This she adds. Now we don't know. I'm not saying that she sort of goes off script. She may, this may have been implied by what Naomi said, or just we may even have just an abbreviation of what Naomi said. Or maybe she added, but she says to Boaz, spread your wings over your servant. Now this may sound strange to us, but there's no question that it wouldn't have sounded strange in the ears of uh, someone in ancient Israel. This refers to the, the spreading of the corner of one's garment over another person, which is a euphemism for marriage. We see that in Ezekiel 16.8 which actually I'll be reading in a, in a little while. And though it seems clear that Boaz and Ruth did nothing immoral, it is surprising that Ruth is so forward with Boaz. Instead of waiting for him to make the first move, she initiates at the behest of Naomi. Now, there are a lot of things we don't know but there are some things that we do know. First of all, we know that the barley harvest was about to end and that the window of Ruth having regular contact with Boab was not going to go on much longer. So it might have seemed to Naomi that, that uh, something had to be done soon. Second of all, we know that Boaz was much older than Ruth. This becomes clear in verse 10. First of all, he calls her in verse 10, my daughter. And then he goes on to say, you have not gone after young men. In other words, after your peers. You've come after an old man like me. And it seems reasonable that if a young woman is interested in an old man sometimes she must take some initiative or communicate her interest because he might be embarrassed to even think of her in that way or much less to put her on the spot by expressing his interest which might be awkward so we know that um, so it might be that that is part of the explanation of why she took the initiative. We also know that men haven't changed in 3,000 years, and sometimes men just don't act when they should act. And uh, they need a little kick in the pants or a little something to get them over the hump. But we also know that Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. For Ruth, and that brings us to this uh, subject of what is called the Leveret Law in the Old Testament. In ancient Israel, it was almost as if you continued living after you died through your children, and that you left children to carry on your name, 
and your state, your possessions, your land. But if you had no children to carry on after you, not only you yourself died, but your name died with you. And that was considered a very undesirable thing. On the threshing floor, Ruth said to Boaz, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a goel, a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. And what does she mean by that? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, we read that if a married man died childless, it was his widow's prerogative to marry her husband's brother. And their, their first child would be considered the child and heir of her original husband. So that his name and his estate would not be removed from the earth, but would continue on. And if that brother agreed to become her kinsman redeemer, and he, he wasn't legally obligated to, to agree, but he was... It was, he was, it was assumed that he would do so for the sake of his family, for the sake of his brother. And it was a shameful thing not to do it, but it was not, there was no criminal punishment. If he agreed to do it, then he would marry his brother's wife and bear an heir, or give her an heir. Now, this law can also be seen in the story of Tamar in um, Genesis 38, where uh, this happens basically to her, and you could read that story on your own. So it existed even before the law was given in Deuteronomy 25. It's also seen in the question about the seven husbands, the woman with the seven husbands, which the Sadducees asked Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 23 and following. So when Ruth says to Boaz, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer, Ruth was asking for her rights from Boaz. She was staking her claim in a sense. Now, let's talk about Boaz's response, it was one of delight. He was not surprised by Ruth taking the initiative. He was delighted that this young godly woman wanted to marry him. And he was profoundly impressed about Ruth's selflessness, that she would want to marry an old relative of Elimelech in order to secure an heir for Naomi instead of just find her own young, younger husband and, and start their own line. In his mind, this act was even more virtuous than all that she'd done before by remaining with Naomi and providing for Naomi when they first arrived. And so he says, blessed, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Ruth 3.10. 
And he was happy to marry a woman as worthy as Ruth. And when he says that all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman, he uses a different word than the word that was used to describe Boaz himself in Ruth 2.1. We talked about that. But the meaning of the two words is similar. It's often used in a military context. Here it seems to mean valiant. She was not just faithful and true. She was heroic in his mind. Well, the scene ends in verses 14 to 18 when Ruth uh, lay at his feet until the morning but arose before one could recognize another. That is, when it's still dark enough that you could, still couldn't see who the other person was, although enough light so you could move around. And then Boaz says, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. In other words, he's wanting to keep it secret that Ruth spent the night there at his feet. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. And I think this is a fascinating part of the story. Here, the secrecy is a big deal at this point in the story. They're, they get up very early so that she can get out before anybody else can see that she's there. And they're probably whispering to each other because there's probably other people sleeping not too far away. And, uh, and so, but yet he stops her from just leaving. He says, wait a minute, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she comes over, she holds out her garment, you know, she's wearing it like, so she like holds it out like a, you'd hold out an apron. And he measures out six measures of barley into her apron. And then she leaves and goes back to home and she finds Naomi and she's, and Naomi says, how did it go, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her and said, these six measures of barley you gave to me, he gave to me, saying, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And uh, Naomi, at this point, is confident that he's going to follow through and, and uh, take care of the matter of the fact that there's another kinsman redeemer who's even more closely related to Elimelech so who gets first dibs if you will on whether uh, they're going to take you know take uh, Ruth so um, this to me is a very touching moment um, especially how they go out of their way, or Boaz goes out of his way to give this gift of barley to Ruth for Naomi. Um, he's given her barley before, but he says this time, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Uh, this reminds us of Ruth 2, 121, where Naomi first returned from Moab and she said, I have gone away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And Boaz uses the same word for empty and says, you must not go back empty to Naomi. So, you know, Boaz is a good man. It might have been easy for him 
at this moment to be absorbed by the delightful prospect of marrying this young woman in his old age. But he doesn't forget about the widow who is back at home worrying about how she's going to survive into the future. And when he sends her this gift, he doesn't just send barley. He sends a message to Naomi with this barley. I'm going to take care of you. You don't need to worry. You don't need to feel empty. And it's a beautiful expression. I think that's easy to pass over and sort of miss. Well, now, in terms of, uh, we've gone through the story. The three things I'd like to draw out for us that uh, uh, I think the, the story in chapter 3 speaks to us. The first thing is about the relationship between divine sovereignty and human initiative. You know, we know that Naomi believed in the sovereignty of God, that God was the one who prospered people or, or caused them not to prosper. Remember uh, in verse 8 of chapter 1, she said to her daughters-in-law, May the Lord deal kindly to you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So she knows that God is the one who, who is kind to people and blesses them and prospers them. And then she went on to say, The Lord grant that you might find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So she knew that the Lord was the one that provides someone with a spouse. And then on in verse 13 of chapter 1, she, she's coming, so she knows that God is the one who prospers people and takes care of people and provides for people. And yet in verse 13, she says, it is exceedingly bitter to me that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So she also knows that God's the one who's sovereign over her troubles and over her bitterness and over her lack of flourishing. And then in 2.20, she says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living of the dead. So again, she is very conscious that God's kindness is the thing that makes people prosper. And so she's, she understands well that God rules over mankind, the affairs of mankind. And yet this didn't stop her from implementing and scheming even this plan by which she would help provide a husband for Ruth. And the point of this is that it's important for us to see that divine sovereignty doesn't stifle human initiative. It actually stimulates human initiative when we grasp it properly because we believe that the Lord can actually lead us in our planning. That we believe that he can use our plans. That he doesn't need to. Of course, he might thwart them. But we know that if he does thwart our plans, it's only because he has a better plan than we do. We may feel that we have escaped many difficulties through our own ingenuity. But the fact is, God gave us our ingenuity and God's the one 
who plants ideas in our minds and moves us in the direction of some resolution to, the, to our dilemmas. So even many times it seems like we're figuring it out, if really him. You know, I've experienced this in my own life in, in very vivid ways. I remember a time maybe 11 or 12 years ago where I was really sort of bitter at the Lord for the, all the times that I had been in a situation where I felt like I needed help and the Lord just hadn't provided the help that I needed. And I felt like, you know, he left me to figure it out myself. And, and then the Lord convicted me that I can't just feel this way. I need to bring these kind of feelings to him. And so I brought it to him. And as I brought it to him, it was as if, as if he said to me, don't you realize you thought you were figuring it out. I was the one giving you the ideas and leading you how to get out. So all of a sudden I realized that I hadn't been alone at all. That he had been with me and he had guided me and he helped me. Even though I had been looking for his help through another person to give me advice, he had given me his help directly. Now, the second thing is that the story of Ruth provides us with a really marvelous example of how to live in poverty. When Ruth and Naomi arrive back in Bethlehem, they're destitute. But the two of them don't give in to waves of discouragement which could easily have overtaken them. They work hard, they try things, they take initiative, they're resourceful. And the reason is ultimately that they know that there's a God in heaven who provides. They know that valleys don't go on forever. You know, some people are really bad at being poor. They just can't accept that they're there. I remember one of my children, when sick in the stomach, used to scream out, this can't be happening to me. As if by sheer willpower, she can make it go away. But the fact is, sometimes God allows his children to go through very dark valleys. We saw that in the book of Job. And now we see it again in the book of Ruth. And Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 11 to 13, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So no matter what happens, God is still on his throne. And the fact is, his richness is always bigger than our poverty. And that gives us strength. Not that poverty isn't hard and difficult and frustrating, but in our poverty we always know that God is in it and rules over the world even in our poverty.
The third and final thing is that I'd like to point out, and this is one of the great things about the story of Ruth, is how Boaz points to Christ, who is our kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer was someone who acted as a substitute in coming alongside an impoverished close relative and took her in and provided for her and protected her and loved her when she had no one else. And this is exactly what Jesus does for us. In, if, uh, in Ezekiel 16, God paints a very vivid picture of what he lovingly has done for his people. And I've, I've cleaned this up a little bit for general audiences. But listen to this. On the day you were born, he tells his people, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out into an open field, and you were abhorred. When I passed by you and saw you, Wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant in the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. And when you were at the age of love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you. And you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and wrapped you in fine linen and silk. I adorned you with ornaments and bracelets on your wrists and neck. I put a ring in your nose, ear, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. What a wonderful and amazing picture of redemption. And this is what Boaz did for Ruth and Naomi. And this is what Jesus does for us. Each of us was like a filthy cast-off who has been taken in by the Lord and made into his beautiful bride. And so let me ask you, have you taken refuge under his wings? You know, in Luke 13, 34, and also in Matthew, Jesus said, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? He is willing. Are we willing? Have you asked Jesus to be your kinsman redeemer and to spread the corner of his garment over you to cover your nakedness? Don't be like those that Jesus tells us about in Revelation chapter 3 who say, I am rich, I have prospered, there's nothing that I need. 
but who don't realize that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Lord Jesus, you have loved us with a love that is beyond our ability to comprehend. We praise you that though there was nothing lovely about us, yet you loved us nonetheless and took us and made us lovely by your grace. And dear Lord, we now come to the table where we celebrate all of this that you have done. And as your children, as your bride, O Lord, we come to praise you, to rejoice in your goodness toward us, to enjoy your love, and to draw near to you. Please be with us, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.